Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a sovereign grace fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently working our way through the book of Isaiah. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA, along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. If you would, open your Bibles to the book of Isaiah, chapter 7. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, but Jim, we should be in chapter 8 tonight. But we have to back up into chapter 7 in order to get a running start at chapter 8 because it's a continuation of the same historic events. And we're going to take a little bit of time to go back and read in the Chronicles of the Kings in order to understand the political machinations that are going on right now between Ahaz and the Israelites and the Arameans. And so let's start at chapter 7 at verse 1. It will give us the background. We looked at it last week. It came about in the days of Ahaz, who was the king of the southern kingdom, Judah. He's the son of Jotham. He's the son of Uzziah, the king of Judah. It came about while he was king that Rezin, the king of Aram, and Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, king of Israel, went up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but they could not conquer it. When it was reported to the house of David, saying, the Arameans have camped in Ephraim, his heart and the hearts of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake with the wind. And then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out now and meet Ahaz, you and your son, Shir Jashub, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field. And say to him, take care and be calm, have no fear and do not be faint-hearted because of these two stubs of smoldering firebrands on account of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram, the son of Ramaliah. Because Aram with Ephraim and the son of Ramaliah has planned evil against you, saying, let us go up to Judah and terrorize it and make for ourselves a breach in its walls and set up the son of Tabiel as king in the midst of it. And thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand, nor shall it come to pass. For the head of Aram is Damascus. And the head of Damascus is Rezin. And now within another 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered so that it is no longer a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria. And the head of Samaria is the son of Ramaliah. If you will not believe, you surely will not last. We read that last week. And now we're going to fill in a couple of blanks so that we understand what's going to take place at the beginning of chapter 8. Go back, if you would, to 2 Kings, 2 Kings chapter 16. And actually, we read the first part of 2 Kings 16 previously to introduce Ahaz and to demonstrate that Ahaz was not a particularly faithful king. He did not follow after God and his law the way that his fathers did. And one of the demonstrations of how he is not following after God 
is found here in 2 Kings, but it's also going to fill in that blank of what Ahaz did as a result of knowing that both the northern tribes, Israel, Samaria, and the Arameans were now in cahoots with each other, and they were going to come attack Jerusalem, which caused him terrible fear. So he's been told, trust God. He's been told through God's prophet, this thing is not going to happen. Don't be afraid of them. Don't fear. Don't take care. Don't worry about it. You're going to be okay. Trust God. Well, it turns out that Ahaz is not able to have that kind of faith. He's not able to trust God. So instead, he tries to make a deal with the greater king in the Middle East at that time, which is the king of Assyria. The Assyrian Empire, which is north of the Arameans, is growing and is about to become the primary kingdom in the Middle East and is about to carry the northern tribes away into captivity. And so rather than trusting God, rather than listening to the word of God that was given to him by the prophet, instead he decides to do a little wheeling and dealing of his own. So 2 Kings chapter 16, we're going to start at verse 7. So Ahaz sent messengers to Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, saying, I am your servant and your son. Come up and deliver me from the hand of the king of Aram and from the hand of the king of Israel, who are rising up against me. Well, that's what we just read in Isaiah, that those two kings were rising up against Judah. So now the king of Judah is seeking help from a foreign nation, not a God-fearing nation, not a nation of Jews, and says, I'm your son, I'm your servant. He's basically handing over Jerusalem to the king. We will be a vassal state under you. And then verse 8 says, Ahaz took the silver and the gold that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasuries of the king's house and sent a present to the king of Assyria. The gold and silver that belonged to the house of the Lord, the offerings of the people that belong to the Lord, he sent to a foreign king. He sent to the king of Assyria in order to try to entice him, to bribe him into coming and protecting them from the onslaught of the Arameans and the Israelites. So verse 9 says, the king of Assyria listened to him. And the king of Assyria went up against Damascus, that's the capital of Aram, and captured it and carried away the people of it into exile to Kerr, and he put resin to death. Okay, so you would think, good deal then, mission accomplished. He's done exactly what I paid him off to do. He has killed my enemy and he has stopped the incursion. But, verse 10, now King Ahaz went to Damascus to meet Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, and he saw the altar which was set up there at Damascus, and King Ahaz sent to Uriah the priest the pattern of the altar and its model according to all its workmanship. So he has gone to Damascus, which is the capital of the Arameans, where he is meeting the king of the Assyrians. And while they're there, he sees a foreign altar, which he decides looks much more appealing than the altar that is in the temple of God. 
And so he apparently saw something up there among the Arameans that he thought, this is much more fitting for a king. A king ought to have an altar more like this. So he gets the design, he gets the pattern, he gets the model of it, and he sends it back to Jerusalem to the chief priest. So Uriah the priest built an altar according to all that King Ahaz had sent from Damascus, and thus Uriah the priest made it before the coming of King Ahaz from Damascus. So he thinks he's really in good now. When the king of Judah gets back here, he's going to see that I have designed the altar that he liked so much when he was in Damascus. So they had to have really put some effort into creating this. When the king came in from Damascus, the king saw the altar, and then the king approached the altar, and he went up to it, and he burned his burnt sacrifice, his burnt offering, and his meal offering, and he poured his libation and sprinkled the blood of his peace offering on that altar. So now he's sacrificing, apparently, to Yahweh, the God of Israel. But he's doing it on an altar that is designed with a foreign design and not the design that God gave to Moses. God was very specific about what every piece of furniture within the temple, within the tabernacle, was supposed to be designed like, how it was going to be built how it was going to be supported, how it had to be transported, what kind of cloth you had to put over it. So God was very specific in the design of the altar, and the king comes back and says, I like that foreign altar. I'm going to go up and make my sacrifices there, pour my libations there, put the blood there. And the bronze altar, says verse 14, which was before the Lord, he brought from the front of the house from between his altar and the house of the Lord, and he put it on the north side of his altar. In other words, the place where God's altar stood, he had God's altar moved so he could put his altar there. Tad presumptuous. Mm -hmm. Then King Ahaz commanded Uriah the priest, saying, upon the great altar, apparently it was a pretty great altar, <laughs> Upon the great altar burn the morning burnt offerings and the evening meal offerings and the king's burnt offering and his meal offering and the burnt offerings of all the people of the land and their meal offerings and their libations and sprinkle on it all the blood of the burnt offering and all the blood of the sacrifice. But the bronze altar shall be for me to inquire by. Again, really, really presumptive. What he has just said is, when it comes time to inquire of God, to go to the altar of God, to sacrifice to God, to try to get an answer from God, he says, okay, that's the bronze altar of God, designed the way God wanted it designed. I'm going to have that over there, and I'm going to keep it in store just in case I ever need to talk to God. But as far as the daily ministration and the daily sacrifices and the daily libations, you're going to do that on my design of an altar and then you're going to take all of the offerings of Israel and take them to my altar. So he's really causing the entire nation to apostatize away from what God has instructed them to do. So Uriah the priest did according to all that King Ahaz commanded. Now, I think that verse 17 only happened because everything up until now happened. Because what we're about to read is that Ahaz started making several other changes to the furniture in the temple as well. 
And I think it's because first he put that altar in place, nobody stopped him, and he thought, well then, let's just keep designing. Give him an inch, he wants a yard, give him a yard, he wants a pool installed. I mean, he just, he just wants to keep going. Verse 17, then King Ahaz cut off the borders of the stands and removed the laver from them. He also took down the sea from the bronze oxen which were under it, and he put it on a pavement of stone. One of the, the laver of cleansing actually had four brass oxen that held the laver up off the ground. And he had the bronze oxen removed and just put the laver down on the ground. If God had watered it on the ground, he would have put it on the ground. But he said it needed to be supported. No, he took it down. And he covered the way for the Sabbath, which they had built in the house, and the outer entry of the king, those he removed from the house of the Lord because of the king of Assyria. So who is he really following at this point? The king of Assyria. He's doing all these things to satisfy the king of Assyria. He's not doing it to follow after God. You can see where he is not actually a man after God's own heart. The rest of the acts of Ahaz, which he did, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? So Ahaz slept with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David. And his son Hezekiah reigned in his place. Now we can go to Isaiah 8. With that background, we're able to kind of plug Isaiah 8 in because God is going to speak to Isaiah. Then Isaiah is going to go and speak to the king and prophesy the coming of the Assyrian encroachment that's going to happen to Jerusalem despite all the money he spent trying to buy himself a friend and despite making changes to the worship of God and the furniture of God to try to buy a friend, his friend is going to recognize his weakness and come attack him anyway. So even though he gave up the treasures that belonged to God, even though he gave up the worship that belonged to God, and even though he caused the nation to apostatize in order to appease a foreign king, the foreign king attacks him anyway. And when we get to chapter 10, we're going to see that God was actually sovereignly behind having the Assyrian king attack Israel and Judah. But at the moment, he thinks, since he's not trusting God, he thinks he's made himself a good deal. And that's where we pick up. In the midst of that whole thing that we just read, as he's changing things, as he's making deals with the Assyrian king, and then the book of 2 Kings just jumps to, and he died. But in the midst of that, this took place. Isaiah chapter 8. Then the Lord said to me, says Isaiah, take for yourself a large tablet and write on it in ordinary letters. That just means the common letters so that everyone can read it. And write this. The NASB has swift is the booty, speedy is the prey. The word booty there is like plunder. What does your translation say, Tom? Uh, the spoil speeds, the prey hastens. The prey hastens, same, same kind of idea. Now, this was a phrase that was used by invading soldiers. And when they would attack a city, part of the payment that they would get 
in exchange for their faithful attacking of that city is that they would be able to take the plunder, whatever they could get from their prey, whatever they could steal from them. And so they would encourage one another with this war cry. And so God says, write in ordinary letters this war cry, swift to the plunder, speedy as the prey. And so it means attack viciously, attack ferociously, attack quickly, and enrich yourself in the attack. Now, the Hebrew of that phrase is maher shalal hash bals. If that sounds familiar, you heard that last week. Because in a moment, we're going to read that Isaiah and his wife had a son. And God said, name your son Mahar Shalal Hash Baals, which, by the way, is the longest name in the Old Testament, mm -hmm. which is why it's one of the reasons that I'm glad it's a name that's fallen out of regular use anymore. So God has actually said, name your son, swift is the booty and speedy is the prey. The war cry of invading armies Name your son that. Verse 2 says, And I will take to myself faithful witnesses for testimony. What God is saying is, I'm going to have a couple people come, people that I have chosen, who are going to come and witness you writing this down. They're going to witness you prophesying this right now. So that when it actually happens, when the Assyrian armies attack, and they're shouting this as they're going through the city, they're going to be able to testify that you had already predicted it and already wrote it down way in advance. So God says, I'm going to get two witnesses, and I'm going to choose them myself, faithful witnesses for testimony, and one of them is Uriah the priest. We already know about Uriah the priest. And the other is a fellow named Zechariah, the son of Jeberechiah, we don't know anything else about him. That's the only place where he is mentioned that is not Zechariah the prophet. So, verse 3, we read last week, and I said it was one of the most tender descriptions of approaching your wife to produce a child I think I've ever read. It said, so I approached the prophetess, and she conceived. That kind of leapt over a few interstitial activities, but... So I approached the prophetess, and she conceived, and she gave birth to a son, and then the Lord said to me, Name him Maher Shalal Hashbaz. For before the boy knows how to cry out, My father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria, those are the two capital cities, Samaria, the capital of the northern tribes of Israel, Damascus, the capital of the Arameans, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. In other words, swift is the booty and speedy to the prey. They're going to come in and take the wealth of those two cities. So here again, the king is being encouraged to trust God. Just trust God. You don't have to worry about the deals that you're making. And yet, of course, Ahaz continues to make deals with the very people who are going to attack him in the end anyway. Before the boy knows how to cry out, my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away 
before the king of Assyria. That actually happened in 732 BC. So we have a pretty good sense of exactly when this event took place. And again, the Lord spoke to me further saying, inasmuch as these people have rejected the gently flowing waters of Shiloh, that's a reference to the pool of Siloam. The pool of Siloam was a like a naturally occurring spring that fed water to the residents of Jerusalem behind the wall, which was one of the reasons that they could go behind the walls of Jerusalem and last out a siege because they did have water coming in a regular basis. But it was actually a pool. It wasn't an active spring, and it sat very gently. And so God starts by pointing out how gentle the flowing waters of Shiloh actually are. And then he's going to contrast them to Rezin and Ramaliah and the king of Assyria and all his enemies. And he's going to call them strong and abundant, overflowing, flooding waters of the Euphrates. So that's turbulent water. That's flooding water. That's drowning water. And so he says they didn't prefer the gentle water that I was providing them. Instead, they rejoice in Rezin, the son of Ramaliah. Now, therefore, behold, the Lord is about to bring on them the strong and abundant waters of the Euphrates. By the way, no mistake that he would make reference to the Euphrates, which to this very day still goes through Iraq and goes up and is one of the main water sources for Assyria. And so he's saying, I'm going to bring on you the forces of Assyria. God takes credit, by the way, for the fact that he's bringing the sources, bringing the uh, watery trouble that's going to come to them. The same way that God, and I just find this interesting, that no matter where you look, you still see the sovereignty of God behind the scenes controlling things and deciding things. He's the one who said, I'll take to myself faithful witnesses. He didn't say, go find a couple witnesses. He said, I'm going to pick the witnesses. These are the two witnesses you use. And then here he says, I'm going to bring on them the strong and abundant waters of the Euphrates. In other words, whatever it is that happens, God is the first source of it. God is the first cause. It is always something that God is doing. Now, therefore, behold, the Lord is about to bring on on them the strong and abundant waters of the Euphrates, even the king of Assyria and all his glory. Now, there's no question about how you interpret that. First, he starts with an imagery comparing the, the flood waters of the Euphrates with the calm pool of Siloam. But now, so that you can't miss it, he says, those raging waters that are coming on you is the king of Assyria and all his army, all his glory. And it will rise up over its channels and go over its banks. That's why I referred to it earlier as flooding water, because it's not just going to stay within its banks. It's going to overflood its banks and its channels. By the way, the king of Assyria actually attacking Jerusalem, just like Isaiah said, actually happened in 701 B.C., so, so far, Isaiah's got a perfect batting average going. Then it will sweep on into Judah, and it will overflow and pass through. And then, really interesting phrase, it will reach even to the neck. In other words, the flood water 
is going to put you in terrible peril and not quite drown you. Because remember the promise that God has already made to Ahaz, which is he's not going to be able to overthrow you. He's going to attack you, but I'm not going to let him overthrow you. The attack is going to be bad. It's going to put you in great peril, but it's not going to destroy you. It will reach even to the neck. And then he creates sort of another analogy for it and says, and the spread of its wings will fill the breadth of your land. And then the next two words technically don't belong at the end of that verse. It's a very strange versification that's happening here because then you read the words, O Emmanuel. Emmanuel, you should all know the definition of. It's the name that's given to Jesus particularly that Isaiah has already cited as the name for the Messiah to come. And Emmanuel means God is with us. God with us. So in the midst of saying, I'm going to send Assyria, the king of Assyria and his armies, and it's going to bring you all kinds of trouble and pain, and it's going to bring you to the point where the water is up to your neck, but it's not going to completely flood you. I want you to remember this one thing. God is with you. Despite the fact that I began by saying, I'm speaking for Isaiah at this moment. This is my Isaiah impression. Despite the fact that I told you, Ahaz, to trust God, and nevertheless, you went after the king of Assyria and made your deals and gave away your treasures. Nevertheless, God has sworn to you that he's going to protect you, not even because of you, but because of promises he made to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and particularly King David, and the continuation of the lineage of Judah, which is leading to the Messiah. So despite what you're doing, you have to remember under all circumstances, God is with us. And then look down at verse 10. The very last phrase is, for God is with us. The difference in verse 8 is that it's O Emmanuel. And then at the end of verse 10, it's translated, for God is with us. So everything in between here is bookend by the reminder, God is with us. Be broken peoples and be shattered. I think this is a prophecy against the uh, nations that have come against Jerusalem. Give ear all remote places of the earth. That's your indication that he's talking to Gentile nations, whether the Arameans or whether the Assyrians. He's saying that he's ultimately in control, he's sovereign, and he's going to break them. But at the moment, he's using them to punish his people, Israel. And that's going to become much more clear as we get to chapter 10. But the prediction is, be broken, O peoples, be shattered, and give ear all remote places of the earth. Gird yourselves, in other words, prepare for the battle, put on all your armor, put on everything you got, Gird yourselves and yet be shattered. And just so you don't miss it, he says the exact same thing a second time. Gird yourselves and yet be shattered. Gird yourselves and yet be shattered. So when God wants to really emphasize something, he says it a couple of times. Verse 10, devise a plan 
but it will be thwarted. State a proposal, but it will not stand, for God is with us. So the big picture is, yes, Assyria is going to come punish the northern tribes, take them into captivity. They're going to be broken up exactly like God said. They're going to be shattered exactly like God had predicted. And then Assyria is going to go after Jerusalem, and he's going to use them to correct Jerusalem, but not conquer Jerusalem. And boy, that's like, like the word of God cutting between the marrow and the bone. I mean, that, that's just real specific. It's like, yes, I'm going to let them attack you. I'm going to let them really cause you a lot of distress. And I'm not going to let them utterly conquer you. But I am going to use them to punish you, which means that God is actually in charge of exactly how much pain and agony and difficulty they can bring to Jerusalem. But when they reach the level that God says that's enough, he's going to back them away and they're going to be shattered again. That's a really sovereign God mm -hmm. who's in charge of, I'm going to bring Assyria down on Jerusalem. I've already mentioned chapter 10 a couple of times. When we get to chapter 10, God is going to punish the Assyrians for the haughtiness of heart with which they attack Jerusalem even though he's going to say that they were a hammer in his hand that he was using to attack Jerusalem. But then he's going to judge them for the fact that they attacked his people. And they did exactly what he ordained they would do. It's just a really, really sovereign God way back here in Isaiah. This isn't some new invention that Paul came up with in the New Testament. What you see continually is God is just completely in control. And that's why we preach a Sovereign God. Devise a plan, but it will be thwarted. State a proposal, it will not stand, for God is with us. For thus the Lord spoke to me with mighty power, and he instructed me not to walk in the way of this people. In other words, don't be like the other Jews. The other Jews are faithless. They're not walking in my ways. Remember when Isaiah stood before God and said, Woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. And so God is now saying, don't be like them. Rather, trust me. Be faithful to me. The Lord spoke to me in mighty power, and he instructed me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, you are not to say it is a conspiracy in regard to all that this people call a conspiracy, because they were looking at their northern neighbors, who were also Israelites. They were looking at Samaria. They saw that Samaria had made a deal with the Arameans. They had created a conspiracy. They had created a partnership to go and attack Jerusalem, and so they would naturally say, this is bad. Those two mighty groups of people have formed a, a partnership, a conspiracy against us, and God is saying, it's not a conspiracy. I'm in charge of it. I'm about to break it up. I'm about to shatter it. So don't be walking around worrying and scared and saying, oh, no, it's a conspiracy, and it's going to kill us. Don't be like that. And you are not to fear what they fear or be in dread of it. Don't worry over it. Don't be afraid of it. It is the Lord of hosts. 
That is a very sovereign name, by the way. That is the Lord Yahweh who is in charge of all the inhabitants of heaven, hell, and earth. That is the one who is the captain over absolutely everybody and everything, Lord of hosts. That's an all-inclusive name that demonstrates the power, the complete and utter sovereignty of our God. Sometimes that phrase has been translated as the sovereign God, the one who's in charge of everything. It is the Lord of hosts whom you should regard as holy. In other words, do what I say. Regard me alone. Worship me alone. Don't be worshiping other kings or foreign kings or even the kings of Judah. Worship me alone because I am holy. But then on top of that, and him, God alone, sovereign God, he shall be your fear and he shall be your dread. That's who you should worry about. That's who you should be concerned about. So Israel is busy fearing and dreading the conspiracy between the Arameans and the Israelites, and then they're going to have to deal with the Assyrians. And that's who they're afraid of. But from the very beginning, God has been saying to them, it's not going to stand. It's not going to work. I'm going to protect you. So then they should have had appropriate fear and reverence and worry and concern for God and his word. But instead, they started wheeling and dealing and trying to protect themselves in their own flesh. And so God says that you're not to fear the things that the people fear. Don't fear what they fear. They fear other men. The thing you should fear is me. The thing you should reverence is me. And the phrase and the thing you should dread is me. Because God is about to bring the Assyrian army down on them, demonstrating that he can punish them, and he can punish them severely. In other words, if you want to be afraid of something, be afraid of him. Because he knows how to correct you much more seriously than the king of Assyria knows. But then, if you regard him as holy, and he is your fear and reverence, and he's the one that you're worried, concerned. He's the one that you're dreading. Verse 14 says, then he shall become a sanctuary. So first there's the threat. First there, I'm holy. You should fear me. You should dread me. And if you do, I'll protect you. I'm your sanctuary. It's a very peaceful phraseology. I will become the place that you can go. In Israel, there were cities that were designated as sanctuary cities because eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, all that kind of thing. If you killed somebody inadvertently, their family could come require your blood, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But if you had killed somebody inadvertently and their family was after you and you could make it to one of the sanctuary cities in Jerusalem or in Israel, then the family couldn't come in and get you because you were in sanctuary. Okay, well, that's the idea here. Fear and dread me, I'll protect you. I'll protect you from your blood guiltness. I'll protect you from your enemies. Come to me. Recognize my holiness, reverence me, and I'll be your sanctuary. But to both the houses of Israel, that's the house of Israel, northern tribes, house of Judah, the southern tribes, but to both of them, collectively all 12 tribes, this is really important for you to get, 
all 12 tribes, even though the northern tribes have been taken into the Assyrian captivity and have not been brought back to their land ever since. That's why we still refer to them as the lost tribes of Israel. And yet God keeps stating, I know where they are. I'm going to bring them back. I'm going to go out and find them. I'm going to bring them back to their land. That's part of the land promise. So to both the houses of Israel, I'll be a stone to strike and a rock to stumble over and a snare and a trap for the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So in other words, if you regard me as holy and you have proper reverence for me and you dread, you fear how I can punish you and what I can bring against you, then I will be a sanctuary to you. But in order to teach both houses, northern and southern, I will also be a stone to strike their foot and a rock that they're going to stumble over. In other words, I'm going to cause them to fall. I'm going to cause them to fall down and stumble before their enemies. I'm going to be the rock that trips them. Now, of course, that's language, by the way, that gets picked up in the New Testament. And I really can't keep going without pointing that out. So if you would, keep your finger right there in Isaiah and turn to 1 Peter chapter 2, if you would. 1 Peter chapter 2, and Peter's going to start talking about living stones and make reference to Messiah as a stone and then apply to Jesus the very thing that God just applied to himself. In other words, this is one of the intrinsic evidences that Jesus is God, that the Trinity actually exists because Peter is going to take this statement that God applied to himself and he's going to apply it to Jesus. We're going to start reading at verse 4. We are coming to him as to a living stone, rejected by men, but choice and precious in the sight of God. You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. That's why your sacrifices are acceptable, because of Jesus Christ. And then he says, for this is contained in the scripture. Okay, here's his evidence that he's not just making stuff up, but he's actually drawing it from the scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. Does that sound familiar? It's Isaiah 28, 16. It's, it's, he's quoting right from Isaiah. And long as he's in Isaiah, he says, this precious value then is for you who believe, but for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this has become the very chief cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this doom they were also appointed. There's a very sovereign phrase. They tripped over the stone of stumbling, who is Christ in this context, because they were appointed to do that. If they weren't appointed to do that, they wouldn't do it. There's election. But here Peter says that the stone of stumbling and the rock of offense is Jesus, and the reason they stumbled is because they are disobedient to the word of God. 
And in a moment, we're going to see in Isaiah that the reason that Judah is going to stumble over the stone is because they were disobedient to the word of God. In Isaiah's day, the word of God said everything it had said up until Isaiah. There was the law and there was the prophets. In our day, there's everything, including the revelation of Christ and all the New Testament documents. In other words, you are expected to believe everything that God has revealed up until the time that you're on the planet. That becomes the content of your faith. That becomes the content of your knowledge of God and his workings. And if you don't believe everything that God has said, you're going to stumble over that stone because he describes the stumbling of the stone as being disobedient to the word, being tripped up by the very word of God. Okay, back to Isaiah. I'm in verse 14. He'll become a sanctuary, but to both the houses of Israel, a stone to strike and a rock to stumble over and a snare and a trap for the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Notice, by the way, that it's either or. It's one or the other. It's black and white. You're either trusting God and following after his word, or he's a snare and he's a trap. He's a stone of stumbling and rock of offense. He's either going to bring about your punishment or he's going to be a sanctuary to you. There's just no gray area in the middle. There's no room for neutrality. There's no room for... Well, I'm just going through my life, and I'm a reasonably good person, and so I think I'm going to be okay. It is you are either fearful and devoted and reverent to God and God alone, or God is a stone of offense who is going to trip you up, which you are appointed to. And that divides all of humanity. You're in one of those two camps. There's no such thing as neutral. Many will stumble over them. And they will fall, and they will be broken, and they will even be snared and caught. So then God tells Isaiah, okay, everything I just told you, bind it up. Put it in a scroll, wrap it, write it. Bind up the testimony. Seal the law among my disciples. In other words, notice the language, my disciples. He didn't say, Isaiah, go get your disciples. Instead, what he said is, I'm going to give you those people who belong to me. You teach them my testimony and my law. They still belong to me, but I'm going to give them to you. And then Isaiah is going to use an astounding phrase that Jesus himself picked up. Bind up the testimony, seal the law among my disciples. And then Isaiah speaking, and I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. This is a fairly consistent thing that the prophets do. When they want to talk about Israel getting blessings, they use that name Israel, which is translated as prince that has power with God or various other translations, but they have that same idea of being blessed by God. But whenever he wants to talk about them in their heel catcher sinfulness, he goes back to, you're just Jacob. And so he says, God is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. Yeah, they're crying out to him. The Assyrians are capturing them. 
taking them away into captivity. They're being taken out of their land. And where's God in the midst of that? Hiding. He's there. Does that say, by the way, that God can be quiet if he wants to? Because that's certainly a complaint I hear these days. Well, you know, God used to do miracles. You know, your Bible says that the blind used to get their sight back and the lame used to walk. And, you know, where's that now? Well, it's very consistent in the testimony of God that he can be active, he can show himself, he can demonstrate himself, he can reveal himself, and he can be quiet like he did before the opening of the New Testament when he didn't send any prophets at all and didn't speak and there's no scripture for 400 years. Those are known as the silent years. God just went silent. Israel didn't know what to do. They kept waiting for a prophet to show up. Then the book of Matthew starts with, there was a prophet. There's John the Baptist, right in line with the Old Testament prophets, telling Israel to repent. And then the real prophet comes. The Son of God comes as a prophet. But God, for 400 years, was absolutely quiet. Absolutely silent. And so Isaiah here, I think, is describing a characteristic of God when he says, I'll wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, but I will look eagerly for him. That's exactly what we're doing right now, by the way. Right now, we're not seeing a whole lot of demonstrations of God on the planet, but we're waiting eagerly. We believe the word of God that Christ is going to come back and come get us, that one day he's going to crack the sky. One day it's going to become very obvious that he's here, especially when he's ruling and reigning from Jerusalem. There's not going to be a lot of question about whether God is active at that point. But right now, just like he's been several times in the history of Israel and the Bible, right now, He's just kind of letting things roll while that clock is ticking until the appropriate day that he's going to come into time and eternity again. Not that he's missing. He's just being quiet. Active, but quiet. I feel like I have to keep qualifying that. He's just hiding his face. He's just hiding his face. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. I will even look eagerly for him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are for signs and wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. First off, Mount Zion is Jerusalem. So God dwells in Jerusalem. That's why Christ is ultimately going to rule from Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the place that God chose to place his name in. That's why the temple was in Jerusalem. That's why the worship of God began in Jerusalem. That's why Jerusalem is central to everything we know about the worship of God on planet Earth. But the phraseology here is, Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me. So these are the disciples that we read about a moment ago. God gave disciples to Isaiah and then told Isaiah what to teach. Teach my precepts. Teach the law. Teach them. Bind up the testimony to those disciples. But even God calls them my disciples. They're not your disciples. And then he gives those people to Isaiah. Isaiah refers to them as I and the children whom the Lord has given me. Jesus picks up that exact same idea. Jesus walks on the planet and he's and he states things like all that the Father gives me will come to me. Mm -hmm. 
and then he refers to them collectively as I and the children that God gave me here you want to see it turn to uh, Hebrews 2 13 for a second Hebrews 2 verse 13 I'm actually going to start reading from verse 11 just because I love the theology of the book of Hebrews and it's difficult to find a, a place to begin reading. No, I'm going to start at verse 10 just because it'll fit in with all the things we've been talking about on Sunday morning. For it was fitting for him for whom are all things and through whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through suffering. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one. The NASB adds the word from one father. For which reason he, Christ, is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will proclaim thy name to my brethren in the midst of the congregation I will sing thy praise, and again, I will put my trust in him, and again, behold, I and the children whom God has given me. Peter quotes directly from Isaiah and applies it to Christ so that there's no question about the prophetic nature of the statement from Isaiah and that it was foreshadowing the fact that God gives people to his prophets, God gives people for his instruction, and God gives people to Christ for salvation. In other words, anybody who is actually redeemed or saved or taught through all of history ended up that way because God did it. God gave them. God gave them a teacher, an instructor, a savior, a redeemer. It is always God who does it, so much so that the writer of Hebrews would pick up Isaiah, a Hebrew prophet, and say, remember when Isaiah said that? Well, same deal with Christ. He's not going to lose any of the children God gave him because they belong to God. And that would be eternal security. I'm back in Isaiah 8. I'm at verse 18. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord have given me are for signs and wonders in Israel. In other words, he's saying the very fact that we exist and the very fact that we are going to remain faithful to God, the very fact that we are going to hold to the word of God is a sign to everybody else. It's, it's an indication that God is still alive and active and that God still cares about Jerusalem and that they ought to be turning toward God in faith. The very fact that we are here and we're doing it and I'm the prophet is an indication, a sign and a wonder. He has given me for signs and wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts so they are a testimony to the people, the Lord of hosts who dwells in Mount Zion. Verse 19, when they say to you, this is now God speaking to Isaiah, when they say to you, consult the mediums and the spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not the people consult their God? Should they consult the dead on behalf of the living? You have the ever-living God, why don't you go to him? 
Why instead are you going to spiritists and mediums and mystics and trying to consult the dead to figure out what's going to happen? Why don't you just have faith in God that he has your best interest in mind and that he is going to protect you, take care of you, be sanctuary to you. And then verse 20, which I absolutely love. I was going to start here tonight just to kind of create the theme for the evening, but I think you've picked it up by now. If you haven't, you're not paying close enough attention to the law and the testimony. In other words, to the word. Go to the word. And if they do not speak according to this word, it's because they have no light in them. The word here is translated in the NASB. They have no dawn, but the dawn is the breaking of the light. It's the enlightening. And if they haven't been enlightened, then they're not going to speak according to the word of God. But Isaiah is instructing Go back to the word of God. That's where you're going to find your confidence. That's where you're going to find your hope. That's where you're going to find God promising you protection and promising you that he's going to be your sanctuary. So have faith in God and your faith is going to be built up and taught by going to the word of God. This is why we spend so much time again here at GCA just pounding away at the word of God because how many times now, how many verses can you think of? How many passages where it just keeps saying the word, go to the word, pay attention to the word and don't speak outside the word. In other words, don't say things that the word doesn't say and make sure you are saying everything that the word does say. Now this phrase, to the law and the testimony, is how much scripture they had at that time. They had the law of Moses, they had the writing books, and they had some of the prophets. That's the law and the testimony. Just like in the New Testament, Jesus refers to it as the law and the prophets, or sometimes the law and the prophets and the Psalms. And that's where the word Tanakh comes from, from the Torah, the Nevi'im, the Ketavim, and that encapsulates the entirety of the Old Testament. So all the scripture that was extant up until the time of Isaiah he was telling the people, go back to that. Go back and read the word. Really, how important is the word of God then? If it's God himself who keeps driving you back to the word, if it's God himself who keeps saying to the word, to the law, to the testimony, read that, pay attention to that, and then he adds, and if you don't speak according to the word, you have no enlightenment. Have you heard anybody recently, let's say, on the radio or on the internet, have you heard anybody standing in a pulpit saying things that you've thought, that's not in the Bible? Yeah, it's pretty easy to think of stuff like that. I mean, when was the last time you heard a really solid exegetical sermon from Joel Osteen? Well, the answer is, God right here says, they're not enlightened. They don't know. That's why. If they were enlightened, if they actually had the mind and spirit of God in them, they would speak the word. They would teach the word. So he stresses that to the law and to the testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, it is because they have no light in them. And they will pass through the land. Now, this I will tell you, this could be referring to the people who are not enlightened. That may be the reason that they chase after the spiritists and why they go consulting the dead with the mediums. It could be talking about all of them who don't have the light of God. The result is 
whether it's talking to just those who consult mediums or to all of those who don't speak according to the law and the testimony, here's the end result of it. They will pass through the land hard-pressed and famished, and it will turn out that when they are hungry, they will be enraged, and they will curse their king and their God as they face upward. They look up at the sky and they shake their fist at Almighty God because they're hungry without recognizing that the pain that they're going through that's making them so enraged, that's making them so angry, the difficulty they're going through is because of their faithlessness to God. And I've seen this time and time again that people don't follow after God or his word or the worship of God and then their lives go bad and they start yelling at God about it, blaming God, shaking their fist at God. Where is God? How could this happen to me? Well, it's been happening since Isaiah's time. And God himself is the one who says that when they get hungry, when it goes bad for them, they're going to become angry, enraged, and they're going to curse their king and their God as they face upward and then they will look to the earth. If the sky doesn't answer them, they're going to look to the earth and behold distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be driven away into darkness. So there's a pretty major contrast going on in that chapter. The contrast is between the gentle pool of Siloam versus the overflowing rivers of the Euphrates that are going to come and wash you away. Big contrast. Another contrast is pay attention to the word of God or to your own ideas and going and chasing spiritists and inquiring from the dead about the living. And then fearing and reverencing God, in which case he's going to be your sanctuary. But if you don't follow according to his word and speak according to his word, he's going to leave you in a state where when you pass through the land, you're hard-pressed and you're famished, turn out when you're hungry that you become enraged and you end up cursing God. Then they're going to look at the earth and behold distress and darkness and gloom and anguish. God knows how and we touched on this on Sunday a little bit. God knows how to provide for you. He knows how to take care of you. He knows what things you have need of, and it's his good pleasure to give you those things. But he also knows how to withhold those things, and he also knows how to punish people. And one of the ways that he punishes people is by causing lack so that they don't have food, so that they do starve, so that they do go through plagues, they do go through difficulties or foreign armies coming down on them. All that trouble happens, and God is in charge of it sovereignly as a punishment to people, and both the promise of provision and the promise of punishment are completely consistent with the God of the Bible. And so regardless of what happens, whether it's times of plenty or times of hunger, God did not fall off his throne. He's still completely sovereign over both of them. And he is still going to accomplish those things that bring him the greatest glory. So I would wrap up tonight by saying, and I know you're waiting for me to wrap up tonight, but I would wrap up tonight by saying, now that you know that's what God's like, now that you know the character and nature of God, now that it's been demonstrated yet again from the Bible that that's what God's like, smart people would get on God's side yes. right away. 
Run to God. Have faith in God. Trust God regardless of your circumstances. I keep saying genuine faith is standing on the word of God and reckoning it as more true than your circumstances. Because your circumstances are going to make you question the word of God. But the word of God will carry you through difficult circumstances. So I would say get on his side right away. Run to Christ. Or stumble over him. Got it? Yes. All right. Questions? Yes, sir. I like, I like the use of the word dawn in, in uh, verse 20 where it talks about uh, you have no dawn because dawn is going from dark to light. And if you, you have no light to go to, then you're just uh, dark. You're just dark. <laughs> and that's that. There's no way to get to the light. You're just dark. Anything else? Say good night to the internet congregation. Good night. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.